Hello there. This is New Books in Science Fiction. Thanks for stopping by. We're part of the New Books Network, where you can find dozens of great author interviews on every topic under the sun and moon and under any other place in the universe when you include science fiction. Of course, of all the shows on the network, this is the best one. But as the host of New Books in Science Fiction, I'm a bit biased. I assure you, however, that today's show will not disappoint. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe, and joining me today is PJ Manny. Her new book, Identity, comes out this month on October 10th, 2017. It's the sequel to Revolution, which was nominated for the Philip K. Dick Award in 2016, and it continues the adventures of a chameleon-like man who changes identities as fast as you can upload and or download his consciousness. PJ has worked in marketing and story development for film and TV. She is a former chairperson of Humanity Plus, which is a nonprofit organization that advocates for the ethical use of technology to expand human capacities. PJ, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. You said your mission when we spoke on uh, the podcast early last year about your first book, Revolution, was that you want to explain to people through your writing what's coming vis-a-vis technology. So I wonder what lessons or message you're trying to send with your new book, Identity. It's very much the same message. I really believe that people need to understand the changes that are coming because we're already experiencing the future shock of our present changes. And whether these have to do with unemployment or uh, shock of how people present themselves, you know, uh, bodily autonomy, or even just the change in moral structures that some of these things bring. People are having difficulty grasping it because they weren't prepared. And I believe that if I can take people by the hand and through the three books, guide them to a possible future. I'm not saying it's the future. I'm saying it is a possible future. Lots of things can happen between now and then. Uh, But just to start thinking about these ideas, I want to avoid people thinking of those who have enhancements or bodily changes as the other. Because it's one thing for us to look at someone with a, let's say, a bioprosthetic and say, oh, wow, they lost their arm. Isn't that fantastic? They've got this great prosthetic and it helps them you know, have two arms and have ability to have a hand. It's another thing for someone to say, wait a second, that person's brain has been changed. That person's brain has been enhanced. And what does that mean to be human? Well, you deal with that head on in revolution and identity, this idea of what it means to be human. Uh, Your main character in Identity, uh, he's most often referred to as Tom, although throughout the two books his name changes as he assumes different physical and non-physical forms. And he's definitely pushing the envelope of what it means to be human. I mean, that's pushing it quite to the limits beyond, obviously, (laughs) what what we can do today. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So... You have a character who starts out as Peter Bernhardt, 
in a very Count of Monte Cristo story and revolution, he is betrayed, left for dead, and has to pretend he's still dead, but come back as someone else. So originally he adopts a new identity as Thomas Paine to ease his ability to get close to the people who betrayed him. He changes his looks, he changes everything about himself, but most importantly, he changes what his mind is capable of doing. He was a bioengineer, and he was developing brain-computer interfaces, but he was developing them for, for cognitive disorders like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. He wasn't developing them to use on a normal person, but he does. And in many ways, I joke that it's like Frankenstein, except the doctor and the creature are the same character. Uh, he's forced to experiment on himself to be able to vanquish his enemies. So... At the end of the a revolution, and, and I'm not going to, you know, uh, spoiler, um, uh, he has an upload at the end. He's not, he dies and is no longer human uh, as we consider a human. But if you have a personality that is basically the same personality you had in a body, I'm positing, why can't that still be that person? And we have many people who are have non-functional bodies, but they have functional minds. And we don't consider them less of a person. In fact, um, if you flip it around and when you're dealing with Alzheimer's, you have people who have the same body, but they don't have the same mind. So we're, as, as humans, we're, we naturally see this in the disease process, whether we have a, a, a body that no longer works, but a mind that does, or a mind that no longer works, but a body that does. And I'm saying, well, hold on a second. What if I could copy that mind and put it someplace else? Would you deal with that creation, whether it be a digital simulation or inside of a new person? How would you deal with that person? Would you say, yeah, there's a continuity there. There's an old philosophical concept called the ship of thesis. And the idea is at what point does thesis ship cease to be his ship. If you keep on replacing planks and boards and the keels and the gunnels and you know, you're the mast, it's a new mast and it's a new boom, but they're the same as they were before. Like you, you're, you're just replacing them with reproductions of what existed. Is it still thesis ship? And I'm positing, yes, it is. Uh, we actually have actual examples of this. There are plenty of ships that come, uh, like the, the tall ships that come into your own uh, New York Harbor, that people go, oh, wow, it's the USS Enterprise. Not the Star Trek, the original that it's named after. Right, <laughs> of course. And you get on that old three-masted clipper ship, and you think, I'm on this fabulous old ship not realizing that every single piece of it has been replaced <laughs> over time, many times over the last 200 years. So I'm going the same way with people. I believe that the personality is at core what we respond to in humans, and or at least it can be, and that as he changes his name and changes his substrates, whether he's uh, in his original body, whether he's been uploaded, whether he's been downloaded into another body, whether he's been downloaded into a robot, uh, which I have an identity as well, this is still Tom. 
whether he's Major Tom in the server, whether he's Tom in these various bodies, it's still Tom. And yes, he may be a little different in each, where I have, I think pretty subtly, the robot and Major Tom at different times have not as much ability to empathize or connect, whereas the very human Toms do, or certainly more so. You raise all kinds of interesting questions, which is exactly what good science fiction does. And one question for me and an impression I got, and you referred to it just now, is that there is a sense that some part of Tom maybe does get lost as he moves among these various forms, which got me thinking about the question of a soul and... I wonder, you know, if, and that's a big if, if there is something like a spirit, do you think that that is an element that can also be transferred along with the the data and the memory between a biological body and an inorganic server? Or, or to be fully human, do you need a biological body, and maybe even our original biological body, because, you know, Tom, I hope this doesn't ruin anything, does kind of jump around a bit from uh, <laughs> body to, you know, not outside of his body, he, he finds some others. It just seems like uh, certainly something uh, that, that I thought about as I was reading it, about what you could, in fact, transfer if you had the most advanced technology available and what perhaps is some kind of ineffable quality that can't be retained and transferred like that. It's interesting. So at the very end of Revolution, I do play with that idea. And there's that sense that uh, something has happened, whether it is actually transferred or not, no one knows uh, in terms of the spirit or soul. Because I, well, it's a, it's a couple of things. I've thought a lot about the Shinto idea of kami, which is that all things, animate and inanimate, in the Japanese Shinto religion, have what's called kami or spirit. And it's one of the reasons why Japanese society is so robot, uh, there's such robophilia, as opposed to robot phobia, as we have in the West. Um, Japanese love robots. And to, because to them, they possess, a, they possess kami. There's a spirit there even though they are technically inanimate objects. So there's a willingness to engage with the inanimate in, in Japanese culture through kami, but also I've seen in Chinese culture as well, there's, there's a real openness to robotics. And there's not a fear of, oh my God, the you know, robot uprising, they're going to destroy us all. Where in Western culture, there's far more of a polarity between the organic and the inorganic. And let me just throw in that you do have um, sex robots in the book. Not, not, not that I was planning on really talking about it, but it seems like a, <laughs> an, an opportune time to talk about when you mentioned talk about it. <laughs> robot, robot philia. I don't know. That's what made me think of it. There but you go. but there I didn't you mean go. to interrupt your your. How did flow. I not put that together, actually, in my own book? Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so yes, and, and I actually use sex robots because I do believe that uh, much, uh, well, in every major technological change in media that we have 
as humans. This goes back to the to the Guten, to Gutenberg's press. Soon after the Bibles were printed, there were people printing porn. I did not know that. Yes, uh, little naughty books. Um, the same with the movie industry. So as movie technologies changed from uh, motion picture cameras that used film to video cassettes, the entire video cassette industry was propelled by the porn industry. They were the first, the earliest and first best users of it. And that's why people got the machines. And that's why, you know, it's like we talk about how with the personal computer, email was the killer app. Well, the killer app for, for VCRs was porn. And this continues to this day. We see a lot of sexual aids or entertainment, adult entertainment, as the first users of various new technologies or formats. And I fervently believe, because I'm seeing it already, there are already competing sex robot developers out there, that this is going to be our first androids and gynoids, that these are, before we have our home butler, We're, we're going to have our home boyfriend or girlfriend. And not that this is for something for everybody. It's not. But it's something for a surprisingly large number of people. And in fact, um, in Barcelona, Spain, they've opened their first sex bot brothel. I have to Google that. Yes. And China, just recently, they were talking about, uh, there was a company who wanted to do, in essence, a lending library of sex bots. And it was rolling, it was rolling, and then China just came down and said, no. And while they're not giving a lot of public answers to why they did it, one of the big issues they had was a lending library hygiene. They had a lot of hygiene questions. So how can you guarantee that you can clean it adequately, that you're not going to pass sexually transmitted diseases? Um, and that that was actually, I'm guessing, knowing China's... Um, uptightness with admitting that they have sexually transmitted diseases in their country, like that's always been an issue, we don't have AIDS, Um, that this would actually be an issue for them. I would think you'd have more control over an inanimate object that you could dip in alcohol and cleanse and sterilize between uses than you can human beings. Who knows? I totally agree. But for whatever reason, it just gave them a public health sense of dis-ease. Um, maybe when they have more control over it, they might. But one of the reasons why they were interested in it at all, of course, was China's uh, disparity between men and women, given the one-child policy. So they've got a lot of men without sex partners, and they're looking for someone that they don't want unhappy men because unemployed and unhappy men lead to revolution in every country. Wow. Yeah, so they're very uptight about that. They have to figure out the best way to handle it, but they're trying to, you know, in their classic top-down solutions, they're trying to figure out how to do that. But if people are concerned about how people are becoming increasingly alienated from each other and, you know, our kids are, or we fear, I I don't really think it's happening, but there's a lot of talk about people not learning how to develop full relationships with other human beings because they're developing it through communicating by instant message. That just takes it to a whole new 
inhuman and disconnected level if you could satisfy your sexual needs within well I guess it's not a new invention to have an inanimate object to help you no of course not (laughs) but what the only new part of it is that you know as they become more and more sophisticated I just saw one yesterday that was being advertised um you know friends were throwing it up on social media because everybody thinks sex bots are hilarious until they until they're ubiquitous (laughs) but someone threw it up there and apparently this sex bots big deal is that they can tell you jokes Great. And they can smoke a cigarette after, too, probably. <laughs> so I found that really hilarious that that was like the selling point. They tell you jokes. Um, so this is, yes, there'll be more disconnection. But for some people, this is as much connection as they can handle. And one of the things I tried really hard in the book to acknowledge is that there was no judgment about people using sex bots. It just is for whatever reason. And I think there might, what might happen is that our definitions of relationships might change more, but who knows? I'll be really fascinated. I mean, there are all kinds of things I could posit, but who knows if they're in fact accurate. Do you have any sense of how close we are to actually uploading people? And and that got me thinking, that question gets me thinking about how much space it would take to actually upload someone Exactly. It, we're actually farther than we think. And I do a lot. Well, not that, some people think it'll never happen. Uh, I actually believe in theory, when you really look deeply at the issue, there is nothing theoretically wrong with the ability to upload. However, it's a deeply complex problem that involves just about every part of material science and all the complications of human biology for instance you know biological organisms don't really enjoy being in close proximity and long time proximity with inanimate objects and and i mean this inside of ourselves so when we have these prostheses of all kinds you know, it, when people have a hole in their head or, uh, let's say, Elon Musk's neural um, lace, it's a genius idea, but they're really going to have to work out, and I hint on, about a lot of this stuff in Revolution, they're really going to have to work out the material science of materials that don't get rejected by the body. Um, there's also, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about the physics of it, the chemistry of it, the biology of it. Um, the energy use of it, like what's the, as you just said, it's going to, it's going to take a lot of space. It's also going to take a lot of energy and where are we going to generate that energy And there? And I, again, come up back in revolution with a whole bunch of possibilities, but I get to do a lot of hand waving because I'm writing science fiction. And even though it's technically hard science fiction, um, I get to posit that, that here's the direction they went and they figured out how to make it work. Uh, and some of those areas have either been found to be really useful and interesting and other areas already they're saying, well, I think this, this avenue may be a better way to go. So there's so many different ways that people are trying to come up with brain computer interfaces right now. Um, the big issue with uploading is how do we record all that information and do we do it when you're alive, which is how I did it in Revolution by sending nano, you know, hundreds of thousands of, you know, not millions of nanowires all the way, you know, uh, 
up your veins, into your capillaries, to the very end, and picking up the stimulation that's happening through the, the long neural patterns. Or there's a group of people who believe that, no, the only way we can figure it out is actually with the brain that's already, you know, just died, uh, plastinate it, cut it into micron wide pieces and map the connectome. And then somehow we'll figure out how the connectome works. And then there are, there are a whole host of other people who have other ideas. So there are, there are ideas, but the, but, but uploading is going to be another huge step past a functioning long-term safe brain computer interface, internal brain computer interface. There, there are external ones right now. You can strap electrodes on your head and go nuts and look like a weirdo. Of course, look like a weirdo, but you know, some people don't care. Um, but the, the issue is that you're really reading gross signals that can be read through the skull. And that's nothing close to the infinitely finer detail that could be gotten inside the skull by mapping electrochemical reactions. I think it's fascinating that DNA, that nature has created this incredibly tiny way of communicating and replicating an entire creature, whether it's something as large as a whale or as intelligent, supposedly. I suppose whales are smart, too, as a human, but it's it's incredibly small, and yet it seems like once that creature has a consciousness, it's hard to imagine being able to store it in this, with the same efficiency, something so small that, you know, we need, we're talking about huge amounts of energy, probably, and uh, vast storage. Well, the irony is that we're discovering that there is actually vast storage reprogramming information into DNA. Uh, and there are people working on the earliest form of DNA data storage, where they're using the DNA to encode new information. I know there's big blank stretches where there's DNA that doesn't, the coding doesn't do anything. Is that what you mean, putting it in those places? No, it's actually using the DNA and rearranging it so that it contains, in essence, a code you can decipher that has information. So instead of a binary code, it's actually a four-digit, it's a, you know, it's an, an ATCG code, which makes it that much more complex. And I've just, I need to actually study this more because it's something that I think might end up being a way to take this incredibly rich, dense data and store it properly. Um, I don't talk a lot about that in identity, but because of where I'm going in conscience, which is book three, I'm going to have to come up with something that makes that work. <laughs> this is going to be a lot more than just Major Tom running around. <laughs> that raises another question for me, the idea of projecting forward that you're going to write three books and having them rooted in or understanding of current technology, but projecting ahead. But as you're writing them, the world is changing. Oh, it's the worst. Are you, 
So I wondered what kind of challenges, you know, what things change in the real world that affected your thinking about the identity storyline as you were writing it. And one thing that immediately came to mind, having read both books, is the blockchain currencies. And they play a a large role in identity. And I thought, oh, well, that's something, although they were around when you wrote Revolution, they've certainly surged to much greater prominence and people are using their more, they're more widely accepted, Bitcoin and such. So that was one thing that came to mind. I wonder how the real world is messing with your with your head as you as you're working on your trilogy writing near term is the hardest i don't know if book two is going to be there not book two uh i don't know if my next book or next series after these will be near term or as near term as they are because everything is shifting under your feet all the time and there are things i wrote about cryptocurrencies where i nailed it in book two and there are things that i wrote where I went, oh, well, A, that happened way faster than I thought it would, and B, it didn't happen exactly as I described. So people were reading it as like an alternate history. And that's actually how I'm approaching these books now, is, is in essence, they're an alternate history. Um, you know, at the end of Revolution, again, I don't care about spoilers. Uh, the, the America has profoundly changed. The North American continent has profoundly changed because of what uh, Thomas Paine has done. And it's changed politics and it's changed economics and it's changed the movements of people. And from that point on, I figure all bets are off because I'm now writing alternate history. And I try to keep up with what I think is happening. And again, sometimes I nail it, sometimes I don't. Like I'm I'm pretty proud of all the different, you know, national cryptocurrencies I was playing with in the beginning of identity because now we're seeing those. And I wrote those years ago before anybody was talking about national cryptocurrencies. But I also can't keep up with some of these technological changes, and especially the national adoption or the social adoption of certain technologies. Um, Some get pushed off much further into the future than you think, and some get adopted, like cryptocurrencies, shockingly fast. So... You just have to roll with it. I'm rolling with it with this series, and I'm having fun with it. But at the same time, it there's definitely a pressure because at the futurist part of me wants to get it right, and the writer part of me just wants to tell a good story. This notion that's bandied around these days of fake news, I saw a resonance of that in something that happens in Identity, which is that the conspirators who are opposing Tom are going back and changing his story as it's recorded and his impact on society as it's been recorded on the, you know, the internet to turn him into a greater villain. Any contributions he made are being erased from the record. And it made me think of the Russians buying ads on Facebook and micro-targeting specific voters and manufacturing controversies and sowing fake news and lies to basically change the course of history. So about a year ago, maybe more, I'd have to look up exactly when we had the conversation. Um, Joel Garreau, who wrote a book I love called Radical Evolution, which was actually my first introduction to the ideas of transhumanism and human evolution. Uh, He's out of, I want to say, Arizona State University. I really need to check this out and confirm it. But he's got a new group that he's working with that specialize in weaponized narrative. 
And this is what I talk about in identity, because I actually think that this is the new way to wage war, that there, you know, there will, there, people don't have to die anymore. All we have to do is change people's minds so profoundly, they do whatever we tell them. And this gets played out also in the next book as well, that, you know, you can mess with people, but at a certain point, you don't want to mess with them too much because you, you know, you want to reap the benefits, uh, you know, a destroyed populace is very hard to get what you want out of them, except for uh, land. And I'm, I firmly believe that, that this is the future of, of weaponized narrative. And so I had fun with it, you know, playing with, again, with the ideas of the blockchain and, and, and all the public records and all the rest, you know, Russia is still in their infancy in this and everyone else is playing catch up. I actually think it's the most important change in international politics in a century. This is, this is right up there with the Gatling gun. It's going to change and the, and the nuclear weapons. It's, it's going to change everything forever. It makes me want to disconnect from the the internet and certainly never have anything implanted into my brain because who knows who's going to control it and change my memories. That's exactly right. And these are these are the issues, and it could cause an enormous swing. Um, I have a favorite novel uh, because it is a Count of Monte Cristo story. Um, Oh my God, I can only remember the British title of it. It's Tiger, Tiger, uh, Alfred Bester. Um, oh, but what's it called in America? It's called, it'll come to me. I'm, I'm looking at my bookshelves desperately, hoping it's, I'm it's looking actually it up right in front now. of me. Is it uh, The Star's My Destination? That's it, The Star's My Destination. So that's a, a, a Count of Monte Cristo story. And he has this wonderful idea in it called jaunting, where... There's an ability, a newfound ability in certain humans and certain places to move through space and time like a teleportation. And one, and the main character, who's basically the Edmond Dante's slash Count of Monte Cristo character, uh, although he is in no way as noble <laughs> as, as the uh, protagonist in the Count of Monte Cristo, he it has this ability to jaunt which is extremely rare without uh, certain preconditions and having, I think you have to be somewhere like the equivalent of a teleportation device. I, I forget the details, but he has this ability to do it simultaneously in deep space. And he's now a wanted man. Um, and one of the things that happens in society is they build homes where they protect their women in a very Victorian way. And the rooms are designed as anti-jaunting devices. So women are cloistered in their homes so that they cannot be attacked by someone just materializing in your bedroom one night. And there's something to be said for that strange swing of the pendulum back to a more, quote, protective time when people feel so vulnerable. Uh, so either you, you go through that kind of swing or you swing all the way through to a David Brin-like transparent society where it's all out on the table. Everything's open. 
if everything is open, first of all, corruption is very hard to have. And we're, we're very aware of everyone's moves. We can find out everything about everyone. People, A, tend to act better the more you know about them. And B, it really does prevent people from acting out in society. So I, it could go either way. And I think that's actually a really, and it's going to depend on the society too. I mean, there's a reason why a lot of these social media either social media or actual physical devices are being locked down in countries like Saudi Arabia, China, etc., because they know what they're capable of and they actually don't want their populace connected to the the big world. The the anti-jaunting room reminds me of what some people say is the best way to protect your passwords, which is just to write them on a piece of paper and stick them in a drawer. You know, don't have them on a device. Don't have them saved somewhere electronically. You know, certainly don't have them on your computer. Just do it the old-fashioned way and uh, right. take it offline. Well, you've said, and I know you are an enthusiast about the potential of technology and the future, and yet I have to say that a lot of uh, our conversation today and and the message that comes from identity is kind of dark and you don't see a lot of upside yet. So I guess, you know, will the will the last book turn things around or? Yeah, you know, identity is my, my empire strikes back. <laughs> um, you know, it's the, it's the dark middle book. But here's how I actually look at my own approach to all future things. I'm not a techno-optimist. I'm not a techno-pessimist. I find myself a techno-realist. And that means, while on one hand, I'm incredibly enthusiastic about the good that these things can bring, I'm also hoping to be as clear-eyed as possible about the bad they can bring, because all technology is morally neutral. Swords and plowshares. Every single bit of technology is morally neutral, and everything can be used for good or evil. And this is something that... This is exactly the crux of why my mission is to expose as much of this to the public as possible. Because if we know that these things are coming, we can start forming opinions about what to do about it. Because here's the thing, nothing gets banned. It gets banned in one country, doesn't get banned in other countries. It exists in the world. There's no way technology stops from happening, the development of technologies. So the question becomes, as a society, what should we do about it? It's coming, so how should we handle it? And we've seen this in the past. We had nuclear weapons. Well, it's kind of ironic talking, given the time we're in right now, um, in our own little, you know, revamp of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, yeah, but, and, you're, and you're on the West Coast, so yeah, thank you're that you. much Thanks closer. For yeah. <laughs> we're very safe over here. Right, exactly. Um, but there, you know, we've gone through these periods before where we, as I, I think I joked in some essay, we dance on the precipice with, you know, people shooting bullets at our feet. But we're getting, you know, we get really good at dancing. And that's something that humanity has done from the beginning. We figured out every time we came up with a new technology that could either go one way or the other, how to minimize as much as possible. You can't get rid of it ever. 
the threat of it, but minimize the downside enough that it was not a complete existential threat. Now, having said that, <laughs> um, I think we're going to have to work a lot harder now because our trajectory as humans is to become one with our tools. As soon as we took a stick and we used it to dig a furrow and plant some seeds, we also took that stick and bashed someone's head in. So we've been taking these tools, whether they be levers and pulleys and wheels and sticks and whatever, and we've been making them more refined, more specific now, smaller and smaller and smaller, and eventually they will be inside ourselves. I, I really agree. You know, it's funny. Isaac Asimov said this in a, in a filmed interview, and I saw it on a show, and I've yet to be able to actually find the clip. But in essence, he believed that the future of humanity, and I absolutely agree with him, is not about robots dominating us and, you know, becoming our, our evil overlords. It's that we will become the robots, that, that we will take, as we merge with our technology, that's, that is the next human. That it, we're no more like Australopithecus than we will be like this merging of, of machine and man. And it's, it is an eventuality. I agree with Asimov. As long as we don't all die in a nuclear holocaust in the next few weeks. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> then all this, this whole podcast was for naught. Or maybe not. You know, enjoy it, enjoy it while you can, folks. Well, before all goes to hell, I think everyone should go out and buy PJ Manny's books, Revolution and I identity uh it's coming out this month uh october 10th uh 2017 and like i said if you haven't read the first book revolution hurry up uh, so you'll be ready to dive into identity you can find even more interviews on the science fiction channel at newbooksnetwork.com or on itunes or other podcasting services and of course if you like what you hear please consider leaving a quick review our theme music is by michael aaron the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, ably assisted by editor Leanne Wilson. You can find us on Twitter at New Books Sci-Fi or on Facebook at NB Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe and its sequel, The Escape. And you can find me on Twitter at Rob Wolf Books or on the web at robwolf.net. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>